0: Welcome to Veterans Chronicles. I'm Greg Corumbus. Our guest this week is Kyle Carpenter. He's a veteran of the US Marine Corps who served this nation in Afghanistan. He is a recipient of the Medal of Honor, and he's also the author of the new book, You Are Worth It, Building a Life Worth Fighting For. Kyle, thank you very much for being here.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Well, I know from reading your book that you moved around quite a bit as a kid, but uh, where do you consider
1: home? South Carolina's home. I need to take the opportunity, though, to say I was born in Mississippi. So shout out to everyone in Mississippi, but South Carolina's home, uh, and recently after graduating from school, I have moved to Charlotte.
0: Uh, Is there a history of military service in your family before you?
1: So my mom's dad was in the Navy. Unfortunately, he died when I was young. But other than him, just me figuring out the life of service in the military, Know on my own, but uh, it's been an amazing journey. One of the things I read in your
0: book was the, the tension, especially not too long after nine eleven, of go to college or join the service. You really felt a calling, and it was it was a tough decision for your family, and you even went to college briefly. Uh, talk about how you wrestled with that decision, and ultimately, you just felt like you had to join the service.
1: Yeah, so I've always been scared of regret. I knew college was always going to be there, so while feeling this calling to join the military, I didn't want to not do that and wake up one day and regret having missed that opportunity. So I don't think anyone knows exactly what they're getting into with a life of service and and really a life of many unknowns. But I'm thankful I made the decision I did. I'd absolutely do it again and um, yeah, I wanted to do something that was of a greater purpose and bigger than myself or any one individual. Why did you pick the Marine Corps? Uh, I picked the Marine Corps, and you know, to help my parents understand that I was trying to be respectful of them. I went to many different recruiters, all of the branches. At the end of the day, I joined the Marine Corps because I wanted. I had always welcomed challenge growing up, whether blowing bubbles, with gum, sitting in the recliner with my dad, or on the football field in high school. Just always with myself, always trying to get faster, stronger, better. And so when I thought about the Marine Corps, I wanted something that would push me to and hopefully beyond those limits that I knew. And with that, do something that really made me look deep down inside myself you know, to make it that next step or push through whatever is in my way. So safe to say I, I believe that the Marine Corps would do that and it did.
0: Right from the start, right? I mean, yeah. Paris Island, you talk about it in the book of coming onto the island and, and once you were in the camp or something, they blindfolded you so you didn't know how to get out. And it's, it's Yeah,
1: driving up to the gate, putting yeah. your head down in between your legs. So if and when you go crazy or try to run away, you don't know the one and only little windy road on and off the island to, uh, to escape through the swamps, I guess you could say.
0: What was your moment of being broken, as they say there? You talk about it in the
1: book. And you're talking about boot camp? Yeah. Yeah, it was a simple foot drill movement, but it was towards the end of boot camp. I had thankfully been a squad leader for most of boot camp except for about the first week. You know, like everyone, you know, everyone breaks, I, I think, and and then also maybe punished isn't the right word, but suffering even more if you're a squad leader, because anytime someone in your squad messes up, you share the punishment with them. And so I think just after 10, 11 weeks of that, you know, if it was just me out there going through that over and over because I kept messing it up, I think it would have been a different story. but. Uh, even that simple foot drill movement, I messed that up as a squad leader at the very front of the squad, and then the rest of my squad suffered for it, and we all got off step. And so it wasn't just my mistake now, and it was a a good lesson, and as simple as it was, it made me realize that even the smallest of things affects all of the Marines around you. And so, yeah, I, don't, I broke kind of in that moment, and I was just so not only hot in the middle of summer on Paris Island and getting eaten alive by bugs, uh, but just messing it up over and over just in a frustrated
0: type of way. So it wasn't too long after that. It was the summer of 2010. You get deployed to Afghanistan. correct? Right. And you're in the 2-9, so 2nd Marine Division, and you go to Helmand Province. What's your first impression of the place?
1: Before we even touched down, I vividly remember we were in the back of MH-53, Marine helicopter, super stallion. And the back was open. I mean, we were on the last leg, day number 10 of our journey from the States to our small patrol base outpost that we were gonna be living and operating for that deployment. And so being in that environment, the back is open, you have a door gunner. I remember looking back and seeing the door gunner and looking out of the back of that helicopter, and two things were so surreal that it still doesn't even feel real thinking about it and talking about it, but I remember looking out and seeing just patches and different shades of brown and green and farmland. And I remember thinking, am I gonna step on an IED in that field? Or am I going to bleed out in that canal? And it wasn't a scared thought. It was just, wow, after, depending on how you look at it, my entire life leading up to this moment, my you know year to year and a half of training before. And so it was kind of actually happening, and we were really in Afghanistan. And the second piece was the crew chief, who a crew chief rides in the back of the helicopter. He's obviously part of the crew, but he communicates with the pilots, make sure everyone's buckled in. And uh, at this point we had been going through bases. We hadn't touched down you know really outside of friendly lines or any bases yet. and so we didn't have ammunition. As I'm looking out the back, I'm interrupted by this crew chief handing me belts of ammo for my saw and at 20 years old saying, hey, you know, We're probably gonna take contact before we even touch down. I'm thinking like, this is so surreal. But that really set the tone for the entire deployment. Obviously I survived for four months out of our seven month deployment. But for that four months, uh, we were living primitively. The first two months or so we were there, slept on the ground, no showers for the entire deployment. And every single day from sunup to sundown was a fight for survival. And it was never a matter of uh, wonder if we're going to get shot at today. It was a matter of when. And uh, every single day from sunup to sundown was was a fight. We'll talk about,
0: obviously, the day that changed your life in, in a moment. But even before that, there's a gripping incident where you come under fire and you actually get shot, but somehow the bullet bounces off of you and you're basically left with only a bruise, but uh, some of your other teammates
1: weren't so lucky. Yeah, absolutely. And and unfortunately. But, yeah, it was our very first patrol and you worked down leadership-wise, so we had been in country for four or five days at this point, but when you get there you send out your platoon sergeant, and you're most likely a lieutenant, a platoon commander. They interact with the Marines that have been there on the ground, go on patrols, get a feel for the area, and then you work your way down. So it was time for me to go on this patrol, stepped out of friendly lines, and roughly an hour after uh, getting outside of of our patrol base, we... um, came under our first attack and it was our first firefight of the deployment. And I was laying at the end of a road uh, at a dead end but looking through my scope, trying to cover as much of the field in front of us, which obviously would be an avenue of approach for the enemy as possible. And uh, I'm laying up against this wall and it was a shed like many of the compounds over there have to dry out their crops, help process the drugs that fund Taliban and and, uh, uh, terrorist activities. And uh, it happened so suddenly. You know, the enemy opened up, initiated this attack, and it was the one and only time I ever laid down behind my saw the entire four-month deployment. From that moment on, every single firefight I shot from the standing or the kneeling because during this first engagement, I was laying on the ground. And I remember I couldn't even really see around me or see through my scope because of so many rounds and hitting the ground around me, dust being kicked up. And one of those rounds uh, came in, impacted the wall of the shed that I was lying in front of. And thankfully, took enough momentum out of the round uh, that when it did ricochet and come down and of course hit the three inch space where I didn't have body armor and down to uh, where my belt line started uh, it did hit me in the lower back and I thought I was hit And I remember saying I was hit, telling my fellow Marines, grabbing my weapon and running backwards to cover and uh, it turned out to be I guess you could just think of it as a bad paintball hit uh, but I just remember as I was running back thinking like no way I cannot get taken out and you know, I can't leave my guys first firefight really first day of my deployment and most of ours and so uh, that was uh, an eye-opening experience that really set the precedent for the days and months that would follow.
0: Kyle let's get to November 21st uh, 2010 this is the day that you were wounded, the day that your actions ultimately resulted in the Medal of Honor. Uh, So you and a buddy named Nick, is it Euphrasio? Okay, you're
1: on a roof in Hellman Province and take the story from there. Yeah, so the compound we were in, we had only been there for roughly two days. We had moved in on November 19th. We were at four months out of our seven month deployment and looking ahead to that next unit of Marines relieving you so you can go home Uh, before they get there you want to like everything in life leave it better than you found it so to push the bad guys out even further to create more stability hopefully you want to expand your area of operation hold that ground the idea is you keep expanding and capitalizing on every deployment of marines and eventually you just continue to grow your area of operation. And so on November nineteenth, myself and just my squad, which a squad is roughly twelve Marines with a Navy Corpsman who we rely on for medical care attached, we hike down to do just that, to take over a compound, put our foot in the ground, and try to survive and hold that ground. And so Marines always have Marines on watch, on guard duty. And that was the job that my fellow Marine and I were on, on top of that roof. As they did every day, the enemy initiated daylight attack. And until the past few days, we had not seen hand grenades throughout our deployment. Afghanistan, especially Marja, we were fighting across fields and tree line to tree line. And so unlike Iraq, which more of the fighting was urban environments, closer proximity to throw grenades. But Afghanistan, we had not got that close on a consistent enough basis to be able to throw hand grenades. But we were towards the end of our four-hour shift, and it was mid-afternoon, and the attack started. Uh, Everything I am about to say, I don't remember anything really from the entire day, and arguably, the two days up until, you know, I got hit. But three grenades were thrown. I don't remember uh, those three, which all were thrown within the compound and inside the walls. The fourth was thrown and landed in very close proximity to me and Nick on that roof. I don't remember seeing the grenade, thinking about it. Uh, All I remember is physically how I felt after Later, after many years and a, over a 250 page, very thorough and extensive investigation done by the Marine Corps and Department of Defense, it was determined, and also from eyewitness testimonies and a post blast analysis and forensics done by Explosive Ordnance Disposal Team on my gear and the area of the blast, it was determined that I covered the grenade for my fellow Marine. But physically, how I felt after, the first thing was just pure confusion and disorientation. I couldn't see anything. It was as if I was looking at a TV with no connection, just white and gray static. My ears were ringing, and that was interrupted by what I thought was, this will allude to Marine's humor, but my buddies pouring warm water all over me. I was thinking, really, guys, like in this banged up state I'm in, you're messing with me right now. But that final kind of question mark piece allowed for the other ones to fall in place to give me the surreal and unfortunate realization that what I was feeling was blood and I was profusely bleeding out. And I knew from physically how I felt uh, in addition to the medical training we received before we deploy and unfortunately the casualties that I would seen up until that point on deployment. I knew that my time was limited. So I thought about my family, uh, specifically my mother, who would be uh, you know, beyond devastated that I did not survive to make it home. I said a quick prayer for forgiveness and anything I had done wrong, and that was followed by a tiredness that completely consumed me and is impossible to recount. I. I thought those were my final moments, and I faded from consciousness in the world on that hot, dusty rooftop in Afghanistan, and I woke up roughly five weeks later, and my first sight was slowly opening the only eye I had left to Christmas stockings that my mom had hung on my hospital room wall decorating my room for Christmas with snow outside on my window, and I had no idea where I was, but waking up, on the other side of the world at Walter Reed really was the start of my journey. Now, there was many journeys that helped keep me alive and helped me get to where I am today before I even woke up. But that started my journey and my three-year recovery at Walter Reed and really my journey of figuring out this new life and body that I had been dealt and um, how to reclaim it and make the most of it. Our guest in studio is Kyle Carpenter, US
0: Marine Corps veteran of Afghanistan, recipient of the Medal of Honor. His new book is You Are Worth It, Building a Life Worth Fighting For. And Kyle, I could talk to you about your story for hours and unfortunately we don't have that much time, but you talk in the book about this amazing series of miracles shortly after you're injured, starting with the excellent work of the medic. And then the fact that there just happened to be a medevac chopper nearby, And the one that absolutely staggers the mind is that the Navy Corpsman was trying to help you by giving you his last little thing of morphine, and it didn't work, but that ended up being a huge plus. Explain what happened there. Yeah,
1: you're correct. A domino of miracles. It's almost too crazy to comprehend how everything happened from that medevac with one space for a casualty on it already en route to the hospital and they just happened to be flying by. My medevac arrived in 12 minutes, a second miracle. But as we were waiting on that, my legs, the small amount of tissue damage they had were not a priority. But my buddies, from what they told me, they just kind of had the thought of, hey, it couldn't hurt, might as well wrap away. So they wrapped my legs and Doc Friend went to go give me his last morphine shot. We only had one left because of the amount of casualties we had had up until that point on deployment. He went to go uh, administer that last morphine shot and the very small and fragile needle caught that combat gauze on my leg and it bent it and he wasn't uh, able to administer it. Not only did we learn that I had to be resuscitated three times, but when I arrived at the combat trauma hospital, I was labeled PEA, which is pulseless electrical activity, and uh, they told me that if I would have received any morphine, that it would have depressed my respiratory system to the point of being unrecoverable. And so that is one of many over not only those first few weeks, but over the course of my three-year recovery and really my nine years of a journey since then. And I'm thankful that I was able to write this book for many reasons, but one of those being to thoroughly and appropriately explain not only my appreciation for everyone that helped keep me alive, but how all of the pieces and parts fell together perfectly like those dominoes to for the most part, keep me in one piece and and um, you know, get me back here seven days later. All those prayers from your hometown were definitely answered. Oh, they, they played a part for sure.
0: And then you talk about all the surgeries you went through in Afghanistan. And then I think the one that really make a lot of readers emotional is when you're flying from Landstuhl back to the United States and there was a mom who was with her son on board
1: and you happened to be on there too and what happened? So the lady's name is Jennifer Miller and her son, Ryan Craig, was on a deployment to Afghanistan and unfortunately uh, was shot in the head. You don't go to Germany to meet your loved ones unless the prognosis is not good. So imagine as a mother flying over, having to, to pull the plug on your own child Ryan continued to fight and pull through, not only pull through, but continue to survive and get better. So they asked her, hey, you know, you wanna ride back on our Medivac flight? And myself and Ryan were the two most severely injured casualties on board. During the flight, she heard me moaning. As she listened and got closer, she realized I was saying mom. And so she knew what she had to do so she sat in between us and she would hold both of our hands. If they were working on Ryan, she would give me attention and vice versa. But yeah, a story that's still almost too powerful for words, but I'm thankful that I could share that with people, you know, just because we survive off the battlefield. You know, it's a long, dark, scary, and painful journey at times. and. It's not just us going through it. It's military families and, and our loved ones who stay by the bed and hold our hands. You know, Ryan is not only a great dude, but his mom, Jennifer, she's amazing. And actually, throughout this book writing process, I was able to track down my medevac crew, and I was able to go back to Landstuhl in Germany and speak to the staff there and tell them thank you, most of whom were not there when we came through, but you know, they always receive the worst of the worst and do everything they can to keep us alive. And uh, it just so happened that after nine years, well eight years at the time of being asked every year by a nonprofit group, hey do you want to go back, visit launchstone and we both had the time and agreed. And myself, my mom, Ryan and Jennifer all got to uh, walk the halls of Longstool in the ICU where they saved us. So it was amazing to say the least. You have an amazing family and I encourage people to pick up the book
0: for that among many other reasons. So it was really at Walter Reed I'm guessing then that you
1: fully understood the extent of your injuries. Still not knowing what happened. Exactly. Yeah waking up to a long list of uh, injuries and things that had been altered during those five weeks that I was unconscious.
0: How many surgeries did you end up undergoing?
1: Me and mom lost the battle of trying to keep count, (laughs) but if I had to guess, I would say uh, roughly 40. And a lot of them had to do with the jaw, correct? Yeah, facial reconstruction and surgeries and reconstruction by my oral maxillofacial team. Now you talk in the book, Ryan, about
0: how, at least in that first stint at Walter Reed, you didn't feel like you were emotionally overwhelmed at first. But when you got home, talk about how
1: the stress of that ultimately uh, affected you? Yeah, so coming home after being in that stable, calm hospital environment to your neighborhood's field, cameras are going off everywhere, and also for people listening that are like, why was he home so early on in his recovery? At that time in early 2011, there was so many casualties unfortunately coming back that Walter Reed was so full, I remember at one point, they were putting patients in the hallway. So with that said, people they knew that had a long road to recovery that would have to come back to Walter Reed no matter what, once they kind of stabilized us, made sure that we were alive and well, they allowed us to go home with the understanding that I would do therapy at a local hospital at home, and every week or two my mom would drive me back up to Walter Reed to do surgeries. And so, early spring of 2011, I just left the hospital and I was at home. And one night, I was struggling to make a bowl of cereal. It was probably a half gallon jug of milk, but it was so heavy. My face, I couldn't feel it, one, because of the nerve damage, to the grenade blew most of my teeth out. And so, all around, just, struggle. I finally get the bowl of cereal made, and I'm sitting at the kitchen counter. And uh, it wasn't the the struggle of making that bowl of cereal, or I wasn't in pain or anything like that, that made me break. But the main component I, I think was, I had tried to stay so strong, and like thumbs up all day every day, because the hardest part of my recovery was the burden of knowing that my parents were suffering through my recovery with me. And, you know, I know their parents, they love me. They reassured me every day that it was their honor to take care of me and, and, and get me better. But it's still hard to know that your parents are really struggling, really see me suffering every single second of every day that I was awake. And so, uh, in that moment, with milk going all over my face, I broke. And uh, it was by far my lowest point and I was crying and mom came into the kitchen, she rightfully so, thought I was in pain, immediately gave me a hug, asking me what's wrong. And I just asked her, Who's ever gonna love me again? And uh, it was a very tough moment, but one that I'm thankful for because I realized that it's okay to take your time with your unique struggle and to have those breakdown moments. But I'm thankful that, you know, minutes later I realized anytime you're presented an opportunity you really only have two options. I could have chose, which I'm thankful I did, to get up and take that small step or in a way I could have sat at that kitchen counter for the rest of my life. So I chose to get up and take that step and uh, I didn't know how long I was going to be recovering. I think a lot of people get so wrapped up in, oh, I don't have a plan, or I don't really know like where I'm going in life, and that's fine. A lot of times, it's just taking that small step forward and in good time, putting the next one right after it.
0: And that's a big part of this book, too. You didn't want to just tell your story and the amazing people that have helped you along the way. It's what you learned along the way, and your encouragement to other people going through trials of whatever kind. So short on time, but I have to get this story in real quick. Talk about learning that you were going to officially receive the medal, and what that day was like at the White House with President Obama.
1: It was interesting. I was a sophomore in college. I had done my three years of recovery, and the calls started coming very end of 2013. Things quickly got official as the investigation got to a point high enough where not even the Marine Corps really knew if it was going to happen, but no matter what, if it did or did not, we had to prepare. And so, uh, you know, I had amazing Marines I, at the time, Kendra Moats, uh, really, not only a great Marine, but has become a great friend. And she really sat me down and said, hey, I know school's your priority. I know you want to do good and keep good grades, but if this happens, school potentially could become a burden and I don't want you to give that up You know, for this kind of short-term thing that we have to do. So I thought about it. I decided to wait and get the call, which came in February from the president. I had got out of class, drove home, Roughly 30 minutes to Lexington, South Carolina, so I could sit in the living room with my family and my brothers who were in high school at the time and share that moment with them. But I got the call from the president, and he told me you know, not only was he proud of me and what my fellow Marines did, but that based upon the Secretary of the Navy and the Secretary of Defense's recommendations, he was proud to be uh, awarding me the Medal of Honor. And I'm thankful and I think proud to say that I don't feel like the medal has affected me as a person. But what it has done is it's given me a unique perspective. And that is, you know, at the time when the medal happened, everything was so beyond chaotic. I mean, you could barely hear yourself think because the camera's going off in the back of the room. I needed time to continue to one, heal mentally and emotionally even though I was out of the hospital and two, think deeply and reflect on what it really means and represents and over the years I've come to realize that yes, it represents my story, my family's journey of serving and sacrificing with me. Go beyond that, my fellow Marines that were there on the ground with me, those that gave their last full measure of devotion for their country. Go beyond that, you think about the families that will always be missing a loved one, the kids that uh, won't have a parent uh, to you know, get them on the bus or off to school, help them with their homework. Beyond that, the people of Afghanistan that I saw every day, you know, the look in their eyes of just wanting to hopefully one day, just one day wake up and taste peace and freedom and know what that feels like and to be able to, to learn how to read without fearing death at the end of the day. Go beyond that it represents the past generations of service members and Marines who in fields of Vietnam cover grenades for their fellow Marines who at 16, 17 charged the beaches of Iwo Jima and we're told that probably not even going to make it off the landing craft. And if you do, you're probably not going to survive to make it on to the beach. And they did that and charged for it anyway. And above all of that, those that not only gave that last full measure of devotion, but that are still missing in action. And we can't tell their families how they gave that ultimate sacrifice. So it's heavy. It's a beautiful burden, but I am thankful and, and humbled i profoundly grateful that I was recognized and told thank you by my country, but I feel like I'm just an instrument to educate those who haven't raised their right hand and honor those that have.
0: Kyle, our time is gone, but thank you very much for being with us today, and most of all, thank you for your incredible service to our country. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Kyle Carpenter is a U.S. Marine Corps veteran, served in Afghanistan, recipient of the Medal of Honor. His book is entitled You Are Worth It, Building a Life Worth Fighting For. I'm Greg Karumbas. This is Veterans Chronicles.